This episode is brought to you by Sprout Living. One of our favorite new snacks are Sprout Living's probiotic almonds. Wildly delicious and irresistibly crunchy, these are the perfect gut-healthy balanced snack. Each pack of the sprouted and activated organic almonds contain 10 billion CFUs of probiotics, 6 grams of clean plant protein, and a variety of other superfood spices and herbs that do the body good. They're made without seed oils, which we all know are out. And the flavors, the Italian truffle is delicious and the dairy-free cheddar cheese made with turmeric and nutritional yeast always hits the spot. Honestly, we may never have another chip again. Sprout Living also makes our favorite plant-based protein blends. My personal favorite is the coffee flavor. If you want to try Sprout Living, you can save 20% off your entire order by using code COURAGEOUS at checkout. Visit www.sproutliving.com and use code COURAGEOUS to save 20%. Give them a try and let us know if you love them as much as we do. You can also find the direct links in our show notes. Welcome to Courageous Wellness. My name is Erica Stein. And I'm Allie French, and this is a podcast about individual journeys within wellness and how to navigate it all. After Allie experienced a cancer diagnosis in her 20s, and Erica went through a self-love journey, we created a platform to interview real people from all walks of life that have combined all types of practices. From physical wellness to emotional and spiritual, we hear courageous stories and focus on why it's important to share them. We are both certified integrative nutrition health coaches and together with our community are learning to live our most purposeful lives by sharing one courageous story at a time. It takes courage to share these journeys and by talking about them, we aim to destigmatize the process. We want you to be your own health advocate, feel educated and informed on the latest in health and wellness and empower you to feel your absolute best. And because we want to bring forth a wide variety of stories, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect our own, but we hope the diverse and varied stories will empower you to make the best choices for your own life. So join us as we and our community share our courageous wellness. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Courageous Wellness. Uh, We have a wonderful episode for you today. A conversation with narcissist expert Dr. Romani Durvasala. And um, before we get into Dr. Romani's formal intro, we're just going to do our normal weekly updates and uh, just do a little catch up. So, mine this week is that I've been um, doing quite a few events for my husband's job. He's in the music industry and it's Grammy week. And if anybody is aware of that, it, it, uh, It's a very busy time here in Los Angeles, Um, and there's a lot of different events kind of leading up to the awards, which we actually don't even go to. But uh, one of the annual events is something called Music Cares, which is the it's part of the philanthropic sort of wing of the Recording Academy, and it's a really cool organization, and it's special to like my heart because it combines two of my loves, which is music and then also wellness. And what Music Cares does is they provide medical care, physical, mental health services, um, 
emergency services, also recovery and addiction services for people in the music community. Um, and they, you know, a lot of people in, in the music world, most people are, you know, gigging musicians. And so you really need to be able to be present in order to work and earn a living. And oftentimes when health crises or addiction crises kind of come in, you can't work when you need to get proper treatment. And I know people whose lives have literally been saved from music cares, but it's really fun because every year they honor someone in the music community uh, as the person of the year who does a lot of good in in addition to their own sort of like prolific songwriting or, or music career. And this year it was John Bon Jovi was being honored. And I'm I'm giggling because I'm originally from New Jersey. And um, Bruce Springsteen came out to play with him. And so it was like two of New Jersey's finest on stage together. And it was so fun. It was such a like, honestly, it was like an evening of all the best sort of karaoke hits uh, thanks to Bon Jovi and what they do is they like basically throw a big concert. So all these artists come out and perform the honorees music. So you have all these different artists performing Bon Jovi, including Bruce Springsteen. And it was just, it was just such a blast. Um, so much fun. And my little Jersey heart absolutely exploded <laughs> with being in the same, same space as those guys at the same time. It was really fun. A lot of friends from, I mean, I've lived in LA for 15 years, but as my husband said, you can take the girl out of Jersey, but you can't take the Jersey out of the girl. I love it. Yeah. That's oh. kind of my update. And I just, I realized like, I don't think I was ever really conscious of it, but this, that music Harris really does like intersectional work between the two things I feel kind of most strongly about, which is like music and and the work that we do and community wellness and really taking care of their people. That's and just so as an cool. example, like when even when like Katrina happened, right? New Orleans is like a huge music community, tons of working musicians, gigging musicians. People lost instruments. People lost venues. Like Music Cares comes in, I know, um, and like really just supports people to get through really difficult times. So it's it's cool. Check it out if you're interested in in it and and the work that they do. Yeah. And you posted on our Instagram and TikTok uh, a reel of the evening. So you can go check that out at Courageous Wellness. And you can see Ali. She looked beautiful. It's also kind of like the year of Barbie. I know the Oscars are coming up. and But you were in this like hot pink suit that, you know, me and my former life of wardrobe, I just I loved it. And um, it was very cool. It was cool. And yeah, I'm so that's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. I didn't know all of that actually about Music Cares. So yeah. Yeah, very cool to learn. And we know people, sorry, like I could go on, but we know people who basically were like going through bad cancer treatment, uh, bad cancer like diagnosis and had to go through treatments, but then couldn't work. Music cares like, you know, came in and and this person beat cancer, like wow. because they didn't have to be stressed about like not being able to pay the bills while they were doing their treatment too. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I... I don't have too big of an update this week on my end. And I definitely we're going to get to Dr. Romney's episode in a second because it's it's a really good episode that stayed mm -hmm. with me for a long time. And I think, you know, something we also talk about in the episode is, um, you know, now with like TikTok and social media, narcissism is so buzzy, right? Like everyone's a narcissist. Everyone's toxic. But how do you know, right? Like what is, yeah. what is a narcissist? What, how does narcissistic abuse impact us? And, and I think I'm somebody 
who definitely has been touched by, you know, narcissistic abuse in my life. I think a lot of people can relate to it and and do experience it. So this was a really, really good episode. And she also talks about how it's a spectrum, right? right. So like, like, it's not just like, you're a narcissist, you're an, it, there is a spectrum. So really great episode we're going to get into like in a moment, because my I don't really have a huge update. I'm currently, I know we do a lot of hormone health episodes on our show. And it's no surprise to our listeners that I'm going to talk about this, but I'm currently in my luteal phase. And if you listen to our coaching episode from January, um, and if you haven't go listen to it, because we've gotten such a good response from it, we really talk all about tapping in tangible tips to tap into your parasympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And in that episode, I talked about how I've been able to really transform my luteal phase. And, um, you know, the luteal phase, if you are, you know, unfamiliar. It's it, it, Go listen to that episode. It, it's a, it can be a really difficult time of month for women and it can last up to 12 days. And so I'm happy to report that I'm still doing really well as I continue to tap into my parasympathetic nervous system. Um, but I'm tired this week. You know, I think you still, it's like, it is a hormone cycle that we go through for, you know, seven to 12 days a month. And I'm, I'm feeling really tired and it's also there's it's storming in Los Angeles right now. So I'm kind of softening a little bit. So that's mm-hmm. why I don't have too many updates. We kind of kept it really like slow and easy this weekend. Um, that's you know, good. Sometimes so, that needs to ha- like, sometimes that's the best way to take care of yourself is to yeah. stop going, 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 which yeah. I know is ironic coming from me, but I um, know. I, I but, know. <laughs> It's important. But we have, I know Allie's the go, go, go one. I am more of the roster. We did, I did, we did go to a baby shower to celebrate our friend and her we baby did. boy coming soon. Um, so we got to see each other on Saturday, which was lovely, but yeah, you know, so I really still can attest to the fact that tapping into your parasympathetic nervous system, you know, is, is so important for our hormone cycles. I'll link that episode in the show notes, but yeah, just softening this week. And, um, I can't wait to re-listen to this episode. I literally, you know, we recorded it and then we held it because her book is coming out, you know, in a couple of weeks. And I literally have been teasing it with people in my real life being like, you have to listen to this episode. So should we get to the conversation? Absolutely. So today on the podcast, we have a great conversation with narcissism expert, Dr. Ramani Dervasala. Dr. Ramani is a licensed clinical psychologist, and she has spoken at various universities and institutions, including Coca-Cola, Amazon, and Universal Studios, and is a sought-after expert um, with appearances on the Today Show, Red Table Talk, Vogue's open-minded series with Kendall Jenner and more. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Men's Health, BBC, USA Today, Refinery29, the list goes on. She discusses narcissism on her popular YouTube channel, on social media at Dr. Romney, her popular online program on healing from narcissistic abuse, and as the host of the podcast, Navigating Narcissism with Dr. Romney. Her fourth book will be released on February 20th and is a transformative guide titled It's Not You, Identifying and Healing from Narcissistic People. Deeply compassionate and revelatory, It's Not You examines how narcissists hijack our well-being 
and offers a healing path forward. Drawing on more than 20 years of studying, teaching, and helping clients navigate the landscape of narcissism, Dr. Romney unpacks the oft misunderstood personality, showing how to identify the telltale signs that you may be dealing with a narcissist and protect yourself from their toxic influence. Along the way, you'll learn how to become gaslight resistant, chip away at the trauma bonds that keep us stuck in these cycles, grieve the losses, create realistic boundaries, learn the fine art of discernment, and recover your sense of self after years of invalidation. We have a really impactful conversation on narcissism with tangible tips, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, guys. Before we get to today's episode, we want to share how excited we are to offer our community 20% off their first quarter at Saqqara with code XOCourageous. We have been big fans of the company for years, and the Sakara Life Organic Meal Delivery Program is based on a whole food, plant-rich diet that includes fresh, nutrient-dense, and delicious ingredients. It's perfect for those weeks you need a refresh or don't have time to meal prep. They also have a clean boutique, which offers delicious food forward bars, snacks, beauty water drops, and my personal favorite metabolism super powder, which works to fire up your metabolism, stabilize blood sugar, eliminate bloat and decrease puffiness. The naturally rich low sugar, dark chocolate flavor is perfect for smoothies or simply mixed with coffee and nut milk. I also regularly use the Sakar cookbook full of plant-rich recipes, which you can purchase on their website. Click the link in our show notes to visit sakara.com and use code XOCourageous for 20% off your first order. We know you will love it as much as we do. Now onto the episode. Well, thank you, Dr. Romani, for joining us today. Erica and I have never done a conversation ever, you know, close to 300 episodes of the podcast on this topic before. So just to get us started and and our listeners just acquainted with who you are, a little bit about your background and how you came into the work in the world of of narcissism and healing from being in a relationship with those kinds of patterns. Yeah. So I am a clinical psychologist for a long time. I was a professor of psychology and a researcher and over, you know, and and my focus got more and more on not just on personality and personality disorders, but then on this very specific issue of narcissism and the bigger word is antagonism. But it's basically people who are not nice, but it goes a lot deeper than that. And so it's people who are variably empathic at best, who are really entitled and arrogant and combative and invalidating and manipulative and and people in relationships with narcissistic folks who are often questioning themselves, what am I doing wrong? Because sometimes we have good days and sometimes we don't have good days. And, and the thing that's unique with the narcissistic relationship is that when they're on, they're on. And you feel like the sun has been reserved only for your face kind of thing. It is, and some people will say it is the most intoxicating thing they've ever been through. But then whatever sets them off, and it can be a million different things, that sun goes behind a cloud really fast. In fact, it becomes the dead of winter. And people's tendency then is to blame themselves. A lot of the conversation here is about intimate relationships. A person who's in a long-term committed relationship with a narcissist, married to a narcissist, But you got to remember, this can cut across any kind of relationship, a parent, a sibling, 
a boss or a colleague, a friend. And those relationships are really impactful too. And as I did the work, I was very interested in the narcissism piece at first. Why are people this way? How, you know, what is this about? Why don't we talk about it enough in mental health? But what I really saw is the compelling clinical issue is that people in these relationships were not only being emotionally and psychologically harmed in so many ways, in many ways, the world was signing off on that. He's such a good guy. Like, I've never had a problem with him. <gasps> Your mom is a pillar of the community. And the person's like, oh my gosh, like, I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. And I saw this was having long-term effects on people, leaving them with a lifelong sense of self-blame, self-doubt, helplessness, powerlessness, anxiety, second-guessing, um, difficulties with the decision-making, and even physical impacts. So to me, I felt that the field of mental health was simply not addressing these clients. They really weren't. And when they were, for example, there was certainly people who were focusing on things like domestic abuse and domestic violence, but that wasn't this. Like it was, that can be this, but it was something different. And so that's when I got interested in this conversation of how do we help people who've been in these relationships and give them the tools as well as the validation that what they went through was very real so we could end these cycles of self-blame and really bring people back to themselves, allow themselves to develop outside of these relationships as individual human beings who aren't always living in service to the narcissist. That was a long answer to what you just asked. <laughs> no, it was a great answer. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, it it is really, um, it's really important work that you're doing, and we're really excited to dive into it and have this conversation today. And I think you know something, Ali and I were talking about a little bit offline is that I think especially now with social media and the internet, which is such an incredible resource, but a lot of um, these words or diagnoses get really like thrown around almost flippantly, right? Like, oh, well, they're a narcissist or, you know, they're X, Y, and Z. And so we thought maybe just at the top and you've kind of gone into it a little bit in your explanation, but can we actually define maybe what narcissism actually is? Yeah. And I'm sure because I'm sure many people like being selfish isn't being a narcissist, right? So can we maybe really break down like what is this disorder? Yeah. So let's let's start from the, from the top. It's not a disorder. So let's clear that off the decks immediately. And that's one of the biggest misconceptions I see being perpetuated on all social media all the time. Just read, read, yesterday, I was watching a video and they're like, well, a person who's nar a narcissist has narcissistic personality disorder. No, they don't. They do not. And so this idea of narcissism being a diagnostic term is, is wrong, actually. Narcissism's a personality style. You have a personality. I have a personality. We all have personalities. And those personality styles have descriptions associated with them. Narcissism is a personality style. It's a maladaptive personality style. In the long run, it's not doing them or anyone else any favors, but it is a personality style. It falls under a much larger umbrella, to not get too technical on it, that's called antagonism. Really, a narcissistic person's personality style is antagonistic. Narcissism is a very sort of specific kind of subset of antagonism. But what narcissism is, and, and, and let me go backwards for a second personality is sort of our sort of 
psychologically, behaviorally, emotionally, how we go through the world. It's what makes us predictable. An agreeable person is going to be helpful. An extroverted person is often going to like a party. A person who's open to experience is going to be willing to try new things. A conscientious person is always going to meet the deadline. We know this. We get to know a person. We know their personality. We can sort of predict their behavior. Makes us a little less interesting. I think it's actually quite fascinating. So narcissism is just one more personality style, right? And so a person who is uh, who is narcissistic, has a narcissistic personality style, has very inconsistent empathy. It's on when they need it, when they're feeling good, when they're feeling safe, when they're feeling supplied, they're entitled, they're arrogant, they're grandiose, they're selfish and egocentric. They can be very controlling. They do not tolerate frustration or disappointment well. Um, they envy other people. Um, they, they're, I mean, it's all, it's not good stuff, right? They, they're manipulative, exploitative, all of that. Narcissism, like all personality styles, is on a continuum. At the mildest end, you have what I call the Instagram narcissist. These are very superficial, shallow, look at me, aren't I great? And who won't ever, who won't give you the time of day if you're really going through something. They're like, oh, I can't listen to this right now. Like, I gotta, I gotta go. I've got like this big dinner tonight. Whereas you've listened to their problems a thousand times. At the severe end of the spectrum, you have more of what we call malignant narcissism, which can be downright dangerous. And in between, we have lots of sort of grandiose and vulnerable kind of victimized presentations. But this is a personality style. For something to be a quote unquote disorder, there's a lot of steps one has to go through, right? Person has to go to an office of a licensed mental health practitioner and go through a evaluation process and have the therapist listen into them for more than once, actually, to make this determination. And then one could say, okay, this seems consistent enough and it's causing enough problems in this person's life. This qualifies as a personality disorder. But the vast majority of people out there who are narcissistic don't have a diagnosis of NPD. But this takes us to the issue of a lot of people are throwing this term around as sort of the, the last year in 2022, gaslighting is the word of the year. I'm waiting for it. Narcissism might become the word of the year. And that concerns me because people, just like they're not using the word gaslighting correctly, they're not using the word narcissism correctly. A narcissist isn't just a jerk. Let me put it this way. Not all jerks are narcissistic. All narcissists are jerks. This is not selfishness. Not all selfish people are narcissistic. All narcissistic people are selfish. You see what I'm saying? So you got to get your umbrellas right here. Narcissism is almost like, it's like a cake, right? If you gave me a bag of flour, I wouldn't say, oh, thanks for the cake. It's a bag of flour. Now mix that up with eggs and sugar and all the other stuff and stick it in the oven. Now I got a cake. That's narcissism. All this stuff kind of has to hang together and it has to be consistent. We all have days when we're a little entitled. We're snippy with a with a, a server in a restaurant. We're kind of not very nice to a family member. Um, we have days when we're arrogant. We might be like a little bit braggy. We might even have days where we just don't feel like we have the time to listen to someone's problems. Then people say, well, then what's the difference? Healthy people, when we have these moments, these moments when we're not sort of on, we will make amends pretty quickly. We'll reach out and say, I'm so sorry. I had no right to do that. I hurt you. We, we're accountable. We take responsibility. We don't say like, oh God, why did you react like that? I have a, had a lot going on. That's a narcissist version of an apology. A healthy person might do things that don't feel good, that might even feel manipulative, 
but we'll take ownership of them. And we're looking for consistency. One jerky, entitled, arrogant, grandiose, unempathic day does not a narcissist make. We're looking at this behavior over days, weeks, months, years before we can really say this is who this person is and across contexts. So are they like this with everyone, with their employees, with their children, with their spouse or partner, with their, um, with, uh, their friends, we look for consistency and all of that together. That's why I'm saying it's complicated. And I think people are using a very powerful, important word to describe people who irritated them one time or cheated on them one time. And that's not okay. Right. Thank you for defining that. I think that's, yeah, Eric and I were talking about like, there's so much quote unquote therapy talk now kind of across the board and people are not trained to know what they actually mean. And so I'm glad that we're able to, through you, define that even for ourselves so that we can um, like approach this topic in a way that we all have a kind of a baseline understanding of what we're actually talking about. So thank you for that. And I'm curious, you know, how how do people become narcissists? Like I, I imagine you know, you're not born with narcissism. Um, so I'm curious about the story. Like I definitely, we'll definitely go into people in relationship. We'll go into like how we heal, how we set boundaries, those types of things. But before that, in our, in our kind of earlier quest to understand narcissism, how do we understand how people develop this personality style? Mm -hmm. So our personalities are always, are, are, a product of social and emotional development, right? So all of us are born with a temperament and temperament is sort of like the biological part of our personality. It's like the genetic part. It's, it's somebody, you know, it could be little quirks. In fact, it might be why people say, oh my gosh, that little thing you do is just like an aunt or an uncle. And you're like, I've never even met this person. And when you meet them, you're like, oh gosh, they really do do this little thing. And that temperament is then meets the environment. And that's really where the vast majority of personality gets developed, our interactions with the world, with our primary caregivers, with other family members. And as we get older, with with peers, with siblings, with teachers, and then as we get older, with the world at large, right? And all those things shape a personality. Now, this temperament matters because it does give us some insight into where a personality style like narcissism could come from. And keep in mind, there's multiple roads, like to the degree that the destination is narcissism, there's about 10 freeways driving into that city. So one way is this temperamental style that, I mean, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call it a difficult temperament. These are kids that are often quite difficult to soothe. As they get older, they're very behaviorally, they act out a lot. They're very attention seeking. They are high demand for caregivers. And what do those kids hear a lot? Stop that. Sit down. Oh my gosh, you're such a handful. Or they might even be physically abused because they're such a handful. As that child gets older, teachers, the same thing. They get labeled a bad kid and all of those things, right? So that temperament, that difficult temperament can come up against an invalidating environment. And that combination is one path we see for narcissism. A second path is what we call an adversity path, where the child early on, experience some various forms of adversity in childhood. It could have been neglect. It could have been frank trauma. It could be any forms of abuse. Um, it could have been emotional abuse. And that the child, regardless of temperament, but temperament matters here. You really do need that temperament abuse kind of combo in most cases to result in narcissism. You'll it'll it'll sort of it could slowly develop into sort of a narcissistic personality style. 
But then there's another path, and it's what I can only call the spoiled child path. These are kids who are told you're more special than anybody else. You're the most important kid. I'm going to talk to the coach. I'm getting you in this game. You're the best. You know, you, you, no one else gets to pick their teacher, but you do because you're my kid. You're the most special. These are kids who are not taught to regulate. They can throw tantrums when they want. They get what they want when they want. They may be materially overindulged. They may be sort of, it might be sort of a, air kind of, I, I, I don't mean to use this in a gendered way, but it matters. It's like a crown prince. So it's the sort of, ah, this is my eldest, whatever it could be a crown princess or a crown royalty, whatever you want to call it. But this is my eldest, this is my best child. And if the parent is narcissistic themselves, they may overvalue one child. Or again, the, the child also watches their narcissistic parent going through the world, screaming at servers and all of that. Now, not every overindulged child becomes narcissistic. Not every child with a difficult temperament who's invalidated becomes narcissistic. And certainly not every child who experiences adverse childhood experiences becomes narcissistic. The development of narcissism, like most things, is a story that can only be told backwards. Put a narcissistic client in front of me, and probably within an hour or two, as we dip into their history, we'll say, oh, okay, I see where this is coming from. But it is a but it is a developmental experience. And there's also an attachment issue. Many people with narcissistic uh, uh, personalities have had disrupted attachment experiences. They have anxious or um, avoidant attachment styles. They often feel a sense of threat. Someone's better than me. Someone's smarter than me. Someone's got more stuff than me. And so they're kind of always on edge. And there's an edginess to narcissistic people. They always feel like they're about to, like they're, they're like a spring that feels like it's going to pop. And that's who they are. So it means that you're constantly walking on eggshells when you're in these relationships, but that's the backstory of where it often comes from. But like I said, I've worked with more clients than I've worked than not who had traumatic or adverse childhood experience histories did not become narcissistic. Keep that in mind. So that's not the modal pathway where this ends up. And then you throw in things like society. And if the kid was, let's say a kid's really good at something, like a great soccer player, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. And the child only develops one thing. They're like a one trick pony. What happens is then that the child learns that if they are performative, they will get love and they'll take that expectation into other relationships in adulthood. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think this you know, back to the beginning when you said it's it's not a disorder, it's a personality type, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's really interesting because you even just reflecting about how our personalities develop and who we are. And, you know, I'm familiar with, I went through a lot in my early childhood. And so, you know, I'm familiar with um, the adverse child experiences, you know, testing and all of that, but there's a resilience component, right? To how much things are going to impact you. And I think I'm a very, inherently resilient person. And I don't know where it comes from. I had great teachers and great mentors and, you know, I, I was very loved by my parents. And so, you know, there's, there's things that, that I think make a big difference, but yeah, I just am reflecting about that, like resiliency component that, um, I'm really grateful for, but, you know, my first, um, my first introduction of narcissism was actually through discovering that, um, I have codependent tendencies. I I'm historically, or I'm a recovering codependent people pleaser. And I would read books, which is going to lead me into your book too. Cause I would read books about codependency or that my therapist would recommend to me. And, um, 
they were really depressing because they focused so much on the problem. And I was like, great, I have this problem, but what do I do about it? And so again, I know your book really focuses on healing, you know, um, as well. And I'd, I'd love to talk about how we can heal from these relationships, because I think people are familiar with narcissism, either maybe they have been in relationship romantically, um, with a narcissist, married to a narcissist, dating a narcissist, and what that can do to your mental health. And then uh, other people, as we've talked about too, can have them in their families, be it a narcissistic parent um, or sibling or any sort of close relative, right? And I'm curious if the path to healing is different, if it's romantic versus in your um, maybe family dynamic. Yes and no. I think that if we view that there's a core healing process and then there is a sort of a differential healing process depending on the relationship because pragmatic factors matter when you're healing, right? I think one of the, again, going back to your point about how social media tries to simplify all this, one of the big misconceptions that's often flouted out there is that the only way it's going to get better is if you go no contact and you end this relationship. That is simply not an option that is available to most people, nor is it an option that everyone wants to exert. So they may, for example, have a deeply narcissistic parent, but there's other people in that family system they want to be able to continue to have contact with, and that's the price of admission. They may have been um, in a long-term committed relationship or a marriage with someone and have children together. They can't get rid of that person if they get divorced. There's some people who practically can't leave. It's not safe. They financially can't do it. There's a lot of reasons. And you know what? Some people will say, I want to be married. I want to be in a relationship. There's no judgment on anyone's reasons. And I think it gets risky when we say, oh, well, you're, and in fact, I'm, codependency is a tricky concept because I think there's a lot of blame there. You know, I think what are often, um, trauma healing behaviors or um, attachment seeking behaviors, I should say, um, people wanting to ensure they are safe are what drive those behaviors. I'm reluctant to pathologize that, you know, and I think a lot of people who've been through narcissistic relationships are often labeled as codependent, but I say, you know what, once we give them the roadmap on what narcissism is, a lot of people are like, are you kidding me? Are you telling me this person was never going to change if I did this stuff? Oh, hell no. I am not doing this anymore. That's not codependency. That's just not having the information. So the process of healing, the core elements to it, to me, isn't, first of all, you got to know what it is. And the hardest part of this process is the radical acceptance piece. Now, at its simplest form, the radical acceptance is that the behavior in this relationship is not going to change. It's not. This is a person who is going to run hot and cold. This is a person who is going to blame stuff on you. This is a person who is going to move the goalposts. This is a person who is going to throw tantrums. This is a person who's always going to choose themselves first. And you'll be like, oh, but they gave me a gift. Yep. And they gave you a gift and they did it in front of everyone else. So they could see how generous that person was. Okay. So I think that the, the radical acceptance that the behavior in this relationship is not going to change is step one. And for a lot of people, they're saying, okay, I was in this because I thought once they retired, once they got the promotion, once we bought the house, once the baby was out of diapers, once the this, once the that, once the whatever, once that happened, or if I was this, if I lost weight, if I did this, if I kept the house cleaner, if I made more money, they did all the things. 
and nothing changed. I'm like, you could, you could have got, you could have done that forever. I'm telling you, they, it's like a teacher giving you a multiple choice exam and they didn't give you the right option. You're not going to get this question, right? The right answer isn't there. So that radical acceptance piece is the beginning of the process. And let me tell you, that can take months or years. And the main fallout of that is grief. Because once that realization happens, it's not like people have this big, gorgeous light bulb above their heads. They're saying, oh my gosh, my entire life was based on a faulty premise. I, this whole, and it wasn't though, because you actually brought your A game with empathy and compassion into that relationship. You operated from a healthy premise, but like I said, you studied for the exam. They just didn't give you the right answer to pick. So that process of grief allowing that process of grief because people say, well, what exactly did I lose? You lost a lot. You lost, you lost hope. You lost the sense of belonging. You lost a belief in something like marriage or family or whatever it would be. That's a lot of loss. You lost the idea of like, I don't get a do-over on my childhood. So that process of grief, holding space for that grief, being compassionate with oneself as you go through the grief is a big, big part of it. The next sort of big mountains that one has to climb are around self-blame. It's the taking responsibility for. Now, a lot of this also relates to the history a person has. When a person has a narcissistic parent or parents or primary caregivers or step-parent, whoever it may be, that self-blame is much more etched into emotional DNA than it would be if it came about in an adult relationship. So it's really that, you know, constantly almost like checking yourself. And in those cases, this is where therapy becomes so important. So much of my work as a therapist in this space is saying, it's interesting you're taking responsibility for that person's behavior. I'm not saying like, no, it's not your fault. We're not that directive in therapy. It's the sort of finding that kind of a backdoor, but, but. It's also important we work with clients and a person works with themselves, I should say. So a person figures out for themselves, you know, what function was this self-blame serving? Because you know what it was usually serving? It meant that they could keep someone they care about close, which to me is a very, instead of it being, oh, I'm a sucker, I'm a doormat, I'm a fool. It's actually, I just wanted to love and be loved. Best part of yourself. The best part of yourself is exploited in one of these relationships. As time goes on, the win, if you will, the goal, the top of the mountain in healing from narcissistic relationships is individuation and autonomy. Very fancy words for you finally getting to be you. What do you like? What are you about? What are your values? What do you stand for? Who are you? For the most survivors of these relationships, they'll say, I no longer have any idea. These are people who knew this about themselves before they got into these relationships in adulthood. That's an that's not as heavy a lift, right? If this was something you never got to develop in childhood, I hear this over and over again from survivors who are like, you're asking me to individuate? I don't think I ever was because that's what a narcissistic relationship is. It's parasitic. In essence, they're kind of harnessing your identity in their service. So it is now... Who are you? And and I do things with folks when I say three times a day, I need you to say, how am I feeling right now? I'm a little warm. I'm hungry. And say it out loud. Because even those things, because people in narcissistic relationships will say, I'm hungry. And the narcissistic person will say, you can't be hungry. We just ate. So even bodily functions, you're not cold. It's warm in here. All of that 
tends to be adjudicated by the relationship. So it's really bringing a person back to themselves. It's about rewriting a narrative. Most people who've been through narcissistic relationships, their tendency is, I'm so dumb, I'm so ridiculous. And say, okay, let's go backwards and figure out what function it's serving. What, what are you protecting yourself from? In fact, there's a trauma model I use by Dr. Janina Fisher in, the, in my book, where it's really this idea of sometimes the most harmful voices that we use against ourselves are really there to protect ourselves. And that, and she calls it the protector persecutor model. This is a big, big thing for survivors of these relationships because it takes you to compassion. Just where survivors feel foolish. I'm like, everything you did was actually more self-loving than you ever imagined. And then it becomes about building out social support networks that actually can receive that love and empathy and mirror some of it back. It also means whatever fi finding meaning and purpose and what you wanted to do is. In fact, I tell people, I need you to write three lists. I need you to write all the bad things that happened in this relationship. That's not easy. Why do people need to do that? Because euphoric recall and trauma bonding means that people are like, no, 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 la, 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 everything's fine. Not having people do this so they can leave, but rather so they can say, oh gosh, no, 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 no. This is not healthy. And then I tell people, I need you to reflect on the ordinary things you've given up to be in this relationship. Maybe it's watching movies with subtitles. Maybe it's um, making little collages out of fall leaves. Whatever your thing is, and those were mocked by the narcissistic person. Take some of that back. Take some of that back. You may have to do it um, underground if you're still in the narcissistic person's life. And then pump that list up to the things in life you really gave up. Maybe you gave up higher education. Maybe you gave up um, a certain kind of a travel experience. Whatever it may be, figure that out and give yourself permission to try it. It's really about trying things on and coming back to yourself and rewriting that narrative, but also understanding that the other part of radical acceptance is we are changed by these relationships, not necessarily for the bad. I tell a lot of folks that the best part of you, your empathy and your compassion, is really what got weaponized in this relationship. Those were good parts of you and you still have them. That's what, that going back to your point on resilience, most survivors of these relationships are very resilient. They don't think of themselves. They, they call their resilience being foolish. It's about helping people see that this is actually something quite different. Is this an easy process? No. Is it possible? I see it happen all the time. I myself, I'm a survivor of multiple narcissistic relationships. There are some things about me that are always going to be the wounds I carry. And instead of now being angry at myself, like, oh, you're so dumb, Romani. It's more of, I hear you voice. I got that. I understand what you're trying to do for me. I got it. And instead of mocking myself for being obsessive about certain details or overworking, because I think that's how I'll be loved, I'll say, I'm trying to make myself be safe. And that's an yeah. okay thing to do. We want to take a quick break from this episode to tell you about BTR Nation. BTR is a female-founded food brand that is on a mission to end mindless snacking with their protein bars with a purpose. BTR bars and chocolate truffle cups are plant-based and made with no gluten, no dairy, no soy, no added sugar, no corn or rice syrups, no GMOs, no natural flavors, no sugar alcohols, no stevia, no inflammatory ingredients, and no gums or fillers. It's the cleanest label in the category. 
They only use ingredients that you can pronounce and adaptogenic superfoods like reishi, lion's mane, and cordyceps. Allie and I love BTR bars and always have them in our cabinets. I am currently loving the cinnamon cookie dough energy bars and the cherry dark chocolate truffle cups are my favorite sweet treat. Founder and owner Ashley Marie found inspiration for her brand in an unlikely place at an unlikely time at the hospital cafeteria. When both of her parents were diagnosed with cancer, her life turned upside down as she became their caretaker and her own nutrition began to suffer. Ashley was devouring protein bars when she could, as many of us do, to fit in a meal or a snack. Most of the bars she quickly discovered were filled with sugar. After her parents passed away, she founded her bar brand based on their family mantra, be bold, tenacious, and resilient, BTR. If you want to try BTR bars and truffle cups, you can save 20% on your order with code COURAGEOUSWELLNESS at btrnation.com. You can also find this link in our show notes and link tree on Instagram. Thank you for sharing that. I think this, this like framing it with, or, or even just like developing that sense of compassion, that understanding that we oftentimes do certain things for safety, but that's Mm -hmm. actually a part of ourselves that are trying to like be Mm -hmm. self-loving, even if it's, you know, maybe being in relationship in a way that's not serving us as an adult or whatever that might be, that that comes from a place that, um, is actually self-protective and to be able to have start to develop a sense of um, sort of like awareness or being able to observe that in ourselves Mm -hmm. and not continue the pattern of thought of, of degrading thought, especially if, if that was like messaging you were receiving in the relationship and breaking that from like breaking the pattern of doing it for yourself too, continuing that for yourself, but having that compassion, I think can, I'm sure that's very empowering for people. How do you approach if you find, I imagine that if people grow up uh, and don't get that individuation period of time, which is sort of normal in like teen years to break away from parents and sense getting kind of trying things on, as you were saying, like getting this sense of self that we have sort of developmentally uh, in certain ages. If people don't necessarily get that, perhaps they had a relationship with a narcissistic parent. And then do you find that oftentimes that, um, can lead to patterns of relationships with in in adulthood with narcissists and if so and people have experienced it multiple times over or or you find yourself in that and um how do you i guess my question is how do you like start to take responsibility without blame without self blame if the if the pattern of people who are in narcissistic or in relationships with narcissists is to blame yourself or take responsibility for the things that aren't yours. How do you take responsibility for what is yours and then understand the boundary like between what isn't yours and what, what is, what is yours? (laughs) Yeah. So so the, 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 the biggest issue becomes that most people don't know what this is, despite all the content out there, a lot of people still don't get it. Right. And I have worked with people who are in their 50s, 60s, 70s, who've been in relationships that have lasted 30, 40, 50 years or longer. 
And they said, you know, what's heartbreaking is that there was no information about this 10 years ago, 15 years ago. My, my first book on this topic came out in 2016. Other books have been written on this topic maybe in the prior 10 years, but we're really only talking maybe the late nineties. And even then, because the way media worked, those books didn't get a lot of media, you know, reach it's oh, social media allowed a little bit more reach of this stuff. And now we have all the inaccuracies, but the fact is, is that we, most people don't know what this is. Right. And so if you have, if you had a narcissistic parent, self-blame served a very important attachment function. If the child saw the parent as bad, but, but they don't have any other options. They're screwed, right? The child who is being narcissistically, emotionally, any form of abuse has to come up with an internal protective system that takes the blame on themselves because the alternative is too catastrophic. Basically, there's no one in the world that's going to care for me. They need A child needs attachment like they need food and water. So because of that, they're going to construct a model in their heads that this must be something they're doing. And the narcissistic parent doubles down on that. You're not a very good kid. Or you, you, why are you, why are you bothering me with this right now? Or you're being very selfish when you ask for that, right? So the child hears this repeatedly and internalizes that. In adolescence, actually, some people who have narcissistic parents become very rebellious. Sometimes it's the only way they can be seen. It's that's not necessarily rebellion's not necessarily individuation. Sometimes it's a response to that toxic system that they were in, right? It's the sense of the child feels and the adolescent feels tremendous guilt if they dare to be their own person. That child version of them still carries that fear of, if I try to be me, I'm going to lose love. Nobody wants to lose love. So the easier thing is to be what other people need me to be. They still don't know what narcissism is. Now they start dating. Okay, so the now, first of all, society is not helping. Society gives a whole list of BS reasons that makes a person a checklist and you should look for this. And Instagram's made it so much worse. People want these literally want grandiose relationships that they could post about. In fact, when you date an ordinary person, it's not as flashy. Right. So that's not so postable. So we actually have created machines that have created grandiosity in relationships as being more desirable. And so that's made a whole new set of problems that we didn't even have before. But if a person's internal voice is one of, I need to do to be loved, going back to your codependency kind of idea. And if this isn't working, it's got to be my fault. That's ancient. But they still don't know about narcissism. Once we start teaching people about it, they can then say, okay, now I know what this is. And then I can sit with a client and say, so how are you feeling? You know, how, what's this about? And a person can do this with themselves. How am I feeling? The vast majority of people are going to feel stuck. They're mm -hmm. going to feel guilt. They're going to feel pity. They're going to feel fear. They're still not going to believe it. Like, oh, maybe I'm going to be the exception to the rule, right? That's a process. And I, I often call it that's something I call in the book. I call it going into the tiger's cage. Mm -hmm. I say, go, go have that conversation. And then we'll talk about and see how that worked out for you. Invariably, it goes badly. And I can't tell you how many people over the years have said, you know, I had your voice in my head and I thought, now nah, I'm going to try. And it went literally to the word how you said it would go down. It's not because I'm a psychic. It's because this always goes down the same way. So they have to go into the tiger's cage a few times. I always say, listen, if it's just a little kitty in there, 
you go in and pet it and you'll be fine. If it's a tiger, you're going to get it torn apart. But maybe you got to go in there a few more times to show yourself that this is what this really is. A lot of people feel like, oh, gosh, I hope, what if I'm getting this wrong? I'm like, OK, then go get the data now that you know what this is. And so that's where the idea of what is I, I struggle a little bit with this idea of like, well, I stayed. So that's my responsibility. Actually, no, it's not, because I think that there's a much deeper network of trauma bonding attachment needs and all this other stuff being served to make it make it as simple as like well you stayed and they're abusive ergo no ergo nothing you know it may very well be that you until you had this information and then some people will say you know what i'm staying i'm not leaving however now i know when this fool cheats on me when this fool lies to me gaslights me there's nothing i'm doing that I'm staying in this and on the and their child's 18th birthday at midnight, they file for divorce because they know they're going to get harmed in family court. So again, this 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 sense of giving people the tools so they can see what they're clearly dealing with. And then to change the narrative into this is this person. There's a lot of grief, it's injustice, the sense of this is so not fair. It, it's not fair. In fact, if you look at Judith Herman's recent book that came out this year, 2023, she really talks about this idea. It's a lot harder to heal in the face of injustice. We talk yeah. about healing, but healing's a lot harder when there's no, when you watch this narcissistic person waltz off into the sunset, that doesn't feel good. And I think this idea, well, everyone can heal, even if the narcissist gets away with it, eh, it makes it a lot harder. You just take in a walk on a flat road to a walk up the side of a mountain. Yeah, no, I, wow, thank you again. I feel like every time you answer a question, we're just going to keep thanking you because your answers are so, um, they're really clear and I can, I can relate a lot. And I have, I have two questions about this concept of radical acceptance, um, because I find it really, really interesting. And the first one, I think, uh, let me just ask the first one, and then I'll go into the second one, because the first one is, can a narcissist ever change? I mean, listen, can people win the lottery? Somebody won $2 billion in the lottery a couple of weeks ago. So people win the lottery. Mm -hmm. Um, People find heirlooms in Goodwill stores. Yeah. Okay. So when you ask a question like it's that, clear. Yeah. You're okay. You've already sure. been clear. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sure. Are there unicorns? Yes. What needs to happen for that to happen? Sometimes the narcissistic person has to hear, hit what I call the narcissistic rock bottom, a little of what we'd see in addiction. They've mm-hmm. lost everything and they've lost everyone. And for whatever reason, they have that moment and they look around and like, I'm responsible for this. They may sometimes they have to go to prison. Yeah. Sometimes everyone in their life has to say, we're done with you. And much like an addict, the healing process for that narcissistic person has to be, I'm not doing this because I want my family back. I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And then if they had a traumatic origin to their narcissism, then they get into trauma-informed care that's very focused on that. If they had that overindulgence, actually, that's a much tougher nut to crack. I put my good money on if a narcissist is going to get better. It often has those adverse childhood origins. I think mm-hmm. there's more work you can do. If you're just dealing with a spoiled child, I actually think there's almost nothing you can do with them. Mm-hmm. But they do the work and they do the work every day. Oh, they have access to a fantastic therapist who gets this. They can go at least once, maybe twice a week for at least a few years 
Now, insurance isn't going to pay for that. So now we're talking about someone who's probably got about 5000 three to 5000 a month available for therapy bills. Yeah. Um, and they spend all of their life being mindful and aware and empathic. I've worked with narcissistic clients, many of them, one of whom said to me once, you know what, what you're saying to me is that in order for my relationships to work, in order for people to stop being pissed off at me, that I have to care about how they feel. I have to listen to their days. I have to just sort of listen to them, blah, blah, blah at me. I'm not interested. Homie filed for divorce and broke up with his mistress the same day. He's like, I'm out. I'm not interested in people. Is that getting better? I'm glad he wasn't hurting those people. But at the end of the day, it's the... It is every so often we might see it happen. I will say that sometimes we'll even see people might commit to 12 step in a way mm. that will, because they because so much of, I mean, I have to tell you 12 step is probably as much about narcissism as, as it is about addiction in a way, but they will, um, the, um, if they genuinely make amends, if they really have to face up to their behavior, again, if you think of what 12 step says, just because you stop drinking doesn't mean these people are coming back into your life. Yeah. You go make amends and then you let it go. Yeah, and that's what's hard for the narcissistic person. Like I did all the things I did the therapy and I did the apology. Like, what the hell? I did the apology four times. So I got it just the way you wanted it. So how come we're not back together? Mm-hmm. They don't get that part. So yeah. do people win the lottery for two bills? Sure. Do people find heirlooms in those kinds of charity stores? Sure. Am I going down to Goodwill right now thinking I'm finding a Rembrandt? No. <laughs> Exactly. Okay. That's, that's very clear. And so that does lead into my second question because, right, we're talking about this radical acceptance. And as we've been mentioning, maybe someone is like, but I love my husband. He's the father of my children and I don't want to leave this marriage or this is my mom or my dad and they're, I want them in my life. Great. Or like you even said, right. Maybe there's siblings involved. And in order to have those relationships, you have to see the family members, whatever it may be. So it leads into my question of what is your advice on how to keep them in your life and not lose yourself or continue those patterns where, right, it it doesn't feel good or you're, you're suffering from the relationship. So here's the deal. The, the best analogy I can give you is I want you to imagine you have asthma. And you live with someone who smokes, right? And the doctor is going to say the best case scenario here is that person quits smoking, right? But if they don't quit smoking, we're going to give you a nebulizer. We're going to have you put an air filter in your room. And that person with asthma is going to struggle more always from having to live with that smoke, okay? That's a simplistic version of what this is about. That person with asthma can actually get, can do what they need to do to keep their health okay, but it's going to be a lot harder. It's the same thing with a person feels like I have to stay. This kind of takes where we take the radical ex- expect, uh, the radical acceptance and shift it into realistic expectations. If you truly radically accept, you know what you're getting. So when the narcissistic mother starts behaving abusively during the Thanksgiving dinner, there almost is an internal chuckle as though it's happening right on schedule. When the narcissistic spouse cheats again on a business trip, there's grief and sadness, but there's not surprise. What we're trying to do is lift some of the surprise. Like, how could this be happening? 
well, this is what's supposed to happen. In fact, I'd be terribly wrong if it didn't, right? It, it is what's supposed to be happening. And some people say it's it's almost like weather, right? It's like the climate. If a person walked out of their apartment in Chicago in a bikini in the dead of February and was shocked that they are about to die of frostbite, I'd be like, yo, it's Chicago. It's February. Like, what are you doing? And so it's this, it's very, again, it's those sorts of ways of thinking about it. So how does a person protect themselves? It is the realistic expectations. It's putting guardrails. I don't like talking about boundaries as much because boundaries imply something someone else is going to listen to. Boundaries are a very inside game. So the boundary might be, I'm setting myself a little timer. It's the beauty of an Apple watch is that the little timer vibrates on your wrist and isn't going off on your phone. I'm going to set a timer. And from the time this person drops their first narcissistic bomb, I'm setting my timer for 30 minutes and then I'm going to find a gradual way to leave. Or they're going to know this conversations with this person turn sour usually in the two hours. So I'm going to find a way out in an hour 45. Even if I arrange to have a friend call me and my phone rings and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to go. I'm so sorry. It might be things like instead of staying in the family's house when you go on a vacation, say, you know what, we're going to get a hotel for this or that reason. It's whatever little things a person can do. One technique I talk about in this book and I've talked about in my former books is this idea of what you share. A lot of people say, I'm going to tell them this good news. They're going to be so proud of me. No, they're not. They're going to be threatened by you or they're going to rain on your parade. You have good news. Take it to the healthy people first. Call your best friend, your buddy, the person you went to college with, share it with them. Have them say, oh my gosh, I'm so proud of you. At that point, once you share it with the narcissist, you had the joy of having it validated. Same thing with bad news. You go to the doctor, you get some bad news. The narcissist, the last person you should tell. A lot of people say, this will finally bring out their empathy if I tell them I'm sick. Nah, they're going to just think you're inconveniencing them or, oh, now you need all the attention. Find people who will be genuine supports. Narcissistic folks are typically not the ones who will pick you up after your colonoscopy. So make sure you come up with other arrangements. That's what realistic expectations are. So people say, if I can't just share good news and I can't share bad news and I can't share opinions and I can't share wants or needs, what am I supposed to share with this person? The weather, the neighbor's new mailbox, the fact that the, the freeway exit was closed, not a lot of, not a lot of anything. And so that's how you deal with it. And then I'll tell you this now, I talk about something called true North in the book, which is there's things out there that we are willing to fight for. It's, there's no point getting into a fight with a narcissistic person because they've got better tactics than you. You're going to get exhausted and it's going to hurt. But there are times, maybe they insult your child. Maybe they insult your spiritual belief, something that's core to you. Some people say, I'm taking this fight because this is core to who I am. Take it then, take it. But you're going in the tiger's cage, make sure you're suited up properly and make sure you give yourself time afterwards to release. And I always say, prepare for your interactions with them and create something at the end. Even if it's as simple after a toxic work meeting, you say, you know what, I'm just going to step out for a minute and you go and you sit in your car and you breathe, you meditate, you scream, whatever it is that works for you but it's time to come down from that interaction. I'd say half of people who are in narcissistic relationship have on relationships have ongoing contact with the narcissistic person. And these kinds of techniques, they can bring up grief because you're reminded again of how unhealthy this is, but at a minimum, they lift some of that sense of surprise, befuddlement, bewilderment, and above all self-blame.
Wow. Thank you so much for that. And I feel like we could talk to you for another hour about this, but everybody should go out if they're interested in learning more about this and get your book um, called, yes, it's not you. It's not you. <laughs> it's, it's not, not you. you. Um, and we really appreciate having you here today and sharing your wisdom with us. And um, even, even in that sort of kind of advice at the end, I think there's, it's about maybe trusting our own wisdom in, in the context of these ongoing relationships um, and, or, or approaching them with some wisdom too, um, at least with around our expectations. So thank you for that. And as we, as we wrap up, we always ask our guests three wrap up questions. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually really curious uh, the first one for you. So you are in practice, you work with people who are, you know, either dealing with narcissistic, behavior and personality or um, writing and a busy, a busy person yourself. How do you take care of yourself on a daily basis? And do you have any sort of self-care non-negotiables? I wish I was better at it. Um, I'm very much a creature of routine. And so I find that self-care for me is the house, the house looks reasonably clean. Like it, it's like, I did that yesterday. And it felt fantastic. Um, I learning Spanish on an app on my phone. I read, I love to read when the evening comes to a close. I say with a set in a satisfied way, like, okay, you've done all you can do today. And I'll actually play games on my phone. I wish I could tell you I was doing something sort of transcendent. Like I meditate for nine hours a day or something like that. It's not that I actually, it's the, I'm an incredibly introverted person. I rarely leave the house. I travel a ton. So either I'm in LA in my house or I'm on the other side of the planet. Like it's one or the other with me. And so, um, but I do these little, little things in my life that I, that just give me this sort of moments of joy. I have hummingbirds, I have hummingbird feeders, and I love sort of attending to them. I've got a cat. I adore the cat. Like these are very, they're such small things, but that's actually how I do it. And once a day, I try to walk on my treadmill and watch a TV show I like because I actually don't like to exercise. Those are great. Thank you so much for sharing. The next question we always ask is what does being courageous mean to you? I think being courageous is being even willing, even if you're not able to do it, but being willing to do, say, be, even feel, even though it will even though you know the world may not you view it well, but more than anything, like without fear of being judged, like not internalizing the judgment of the world, like allowing yourself to be used. Like if you watch something and you feel sad, doesn't mean you have to tell everyone you feel sad, but you give yourself permission for that feeling saying, I feel really sad right now. I think courage is that we allow our true selves to come out. And again, what we do and who, who we are, but I'm going to put a bullet on that one, a little asterisk on that in a way that is empathic and compassionate. I think we live in a world where people say, well, I'm being authentic. I'm just saying this, but they're, they're saying hurtful, painful things. I think that to me, courage is the capacity to be one's true self, but to do that in a way that's self-aware, compassionate, and aware of how other people are impacted by how we show up. And that is one of so that it's courageous because it's one hell of a balancing act. I mean, I think it's being in line with your values, living that way um, and doing that every day, um, even if it's baby steps. 
Thank you. And the final question is, in addition to your own book, of course, um, is there a book that you'd like to share with our audience that's just meant something personally to you? And it can it can be on any topic. I'm going to offer a couple, okay? Because mm-hmm. I, as you can, I mean, I'm going to give you, I'm almost like the easy book to give you because it's it was just so, it's affected so many of us, which is Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl's existential, you know, I don't even know, testament, testimony is the only way I could think of it, is something I revisit quite often about the, um, how we as human beings navigate, um, how we navigate uh, suffering. And to that end, Judith Herman's book, Trauma and Healing, in the same way, how we heal in, in the face of trauma and that we can and do heal in the face of trauma. But I would say that from a, fiction perspective. I think the writer that's probably most affected me is Barbara Kingsolver. So anything mm. that that divine woman has ever written. Um, I'm right now reading um, a Demon Copperhead, but everything she's ever written is, it's not only compassionate and aware of how the world works, but somehow this woman has got an understanding of narcissistic personalities without even knowing it. Because every one of her books, she carries that theme through in a way that it's sheer genius. And so I think every time I read one of her books, I realize what what's possible in the written word. Um, and I would say, I would say it's, it's those, it's, it's every book she's ever written has affected me in that way. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing those recommendations. And if anyone wants to find you, follow you, work with you, yeah. buy your book, where can they do everything? So I'm going to say, buy this book, please. Um, you can find me at my website, which is drromany.com. And I'm sure you put that in your show notes, I hope. So they can find me at drromany.com and everything is there in one place, but you can follow me on all social media at drromany. And if you go to those places, you can not only learn about how to order my book, but we also have a, a monthly healing program for people who are healing from narcissistic relationships, where we create community and use workshops and question and answer sessions. And just again, this really amazing community platform to foster healing collectively and individually. So you can go there to check that out too. And um, and then soon we'll be dusting off my podcast again and going into a new season. It's called Navigating Narcissism, but we have 60 great episodes you can still listen to. So go back and check those out. Awesome. And my YouTube channel, my YouTube, my YouTube channel, everything is there. YouTube channel for me is like my library. So we have almost 1400 videos there. So wow. go check it out. Any topic you've ever wanted on narcissism is there. And if you want another one to be added to it, we tell people reach out and then we put it in our pre-production queue and figure out how we can answer that question. So you can find me on YouTube too. Awesome. Thank you so much. And, and we'll include that all in all of our show notes. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Courageous Wellness. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode featuring a different guest each week. Subscribe, rate, and write us a nice review. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Courageous Wellness or get in touch via our website, www.courageouswellness.net, where you can also find additional info about our health coaching services, virtual group events, newsletter, and more. Until next week, I'm Allie. And I'm Erica, and we're Courageous Wellness.